feel just a little abandoned. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Awesome to see so many young kids. That's great. question we have for today is why so many denominations? Who, who, Who... is the person that asked this question in here? Well, then I'm not going to preach it today. <laughs> to answer a question like this in the amount of time of a, of, of a sermon is, is not particularly easy. Because it involves so much of church history and so many different things that go along. So bear with me as we go through this today and hopefully I'll touch on enough things to make it understandable. So let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts. Through your Holy Spirit, open our minds and, and, and cause us to be able to find those things in the message today that, and in the words that we share from your scripture the, that will minister to us. And Lord, I am keenly aware that there's an intent in my mind of what the, the, the message is, is to do. But Lord, through your Holy Spirit, you can cause today's message to minister in so many different ways that I can't imagine. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would go out in such a way as to minister to this body this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Why so many denominations? Or, and and I, I put underneath that church groups uh, because there's a lot of organizations, uh, if you will, or, or, or church groups, uh, affiliations, that's hard to say how to put it, that don't call themselves a quote-unquote a denomination and yet have somehow managed to uh, create a fellowship of, of, of like-minded churches to the point where they'll have conferences and, and different things just like any other denomination might do. And as a result, uh, you might say they're, they're denomination. I was thinking of the Saddleback Church as one, uh, uh, Rick Warren. Uh, you know, it's it's... Not, and it's not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand. It's what I'm just saying is, is that churches tend to group together based on agreement of certain things in reference to Scripture. Uh, so I thought the first thing we have to do is say, okay, define church. Okay. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar. Most of you know that. Uh, but the word, and I, and I don't turn around and say, thus saith the Greek. I know better than to do that. My, uh, my Greek professor and, and uh, New Testament professor in Bible college uh, threatened us that if he was ever in the congregation and we stood up and said the Greek says, he would say, and where and what page and, what, and what's the word in the context of the phrases and the, and the, the breakage of the nouns and the, and, and, and the endings and all this stuff. And right there in the congregation, he says, I'll stand up and do it to you. He says, because you're not Greek scholars. Uh, and uh, I, I kept trying to think if I ever heard George Alder say, the Greek says. Uh, and he had the right to say it uh, as, a, as a, uh, a Greek scholar. So, uh, But he would say, in studying the word and going to the Greek resources and, and dictionaries, the word is ekklesia. And I know most of you have heard that word. Uh, I'm looking around and seeing the majority the, the your people that have been in church uh, over the years, and you've heard the word. If you want to know its its uh, Strong's Concordance number, it's 1577. And uh, and what it says is that it's it's those who have been called out is the general collective meeting. Those who have been called out, and, and it's a people who have been called out, is another way of putting it. And we also use the term, besides church, we also use the term body of Christ. Now, we were in Ephesians uh, earlier this morning, and, and in, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we have this picture. Uh, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things, referring to Jesus, head of all things, to the church, which is his body. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He put all things, the Father put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
I have been asked before, and I've maybe even mentioned it from the pulpit before, but uh, I was quizzed by an evangelist uh, uh, missionary who was staying at our home. And, and he, we read through that verse, and he says, so where are you, Bob? And I said, well, I'm under his feet. And he said, no. He said, you are his body. You're sitting at the right hand of God. We are, and I'd, I'd never put it together that way. I always had seen it this way, you know, you're under his feet. We are the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and we, we are part of that whole picture of, of heaven in that sense, and it's, it's an awesome picture to see. So, which, you know, we are uh, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He fills his body. How does he do that? Through the Holy Spirit. And at the point in time that we confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people will say you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of things that go on with Pentecostal and Charismatic. uh, And I'm not going to get into sidetracked into that as much as to say, initially becoming a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Is there a growth in that? Is there a continual filling of the Holy Spirit? An ongoing filling of the Spirit? Absolutely. But it starts at the point of confession and acceptance of salvation. Okay? So we are the church. The body of Christ. And the reason why I put that is the, is that the, church, the, 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 the church consists of all the people called out to God. Some will say the universal church. I'm careful to say that because the Catholic church is considered the universal church. In fact, Catholic means universal. So, uh, you know, but we are the universal church in the context that everybody who has confessed Jesus Christ for that matter, past, present, and future, is the church. It's not a building. How many of us you know, get up and, and say, well, we're going to church this morning? I, I think we said, I might have said it at least once this morning, when we get to church or something to that effect. Okay? We use the church in the term of a vernacular as a building where we go to worship. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to change the way you think about it. But the reality is, is the church is really not a building. It's the people in the building. So when we define the church, uh, we say it's a, a, a people called out who meet together to worship God, to glorify God. The purpose that we are here is to worship and glorify God. And, and so I, that, that becomes the idea of the universal church is all those who have received Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All who seek fellowship and edification in the local church make up the universal church or the universal body of Christ. So if there is somebody worshiping in Japan or somebody worshiping in Mongolia or somebody worshiping in Iran or somebody worshiping in Ethiopia, it doesn't matter where they are. If they are worshiping Jesus Christ and have a personal savior relationship with him, Uh, They are the church. So all of the people called out is the church. It's not. And and the church has been represented in local places through the local body of Christ. We're not the complete body of Christ. We are the local body of Christ. In fact, uh, oftentimes we will have missionaries that will come in and speak to do what? to bring us to a point where we understand what's going on in the body of Christ someplace else. And it's different than what's going on here. What's happening in the local body of Christ can be different in any number of places. We had uh, uh, people that we knew that were missionaries in uh, India. And... uh, uh, they shared with us, they came, uh, they were third generation missionaries there. In other words, their, their grandparents, their parents, and now them. And, uh, and the things that they shared about what was going on in India was considerably different than what was going on here in the United States. And yet there was, you could see that the, the idea was is that but we are all part of the body of Christ. So what do, we, what, we, what do we do? We turn around and God gives us resources to do what? Support those, those works in other places. 
So we become responsible. And we even see this in Scripture where Paul calls on other people to support the church in Judea, from outside in the Mediterranean area in, in Jerusalem and, and to do different things. We, we come together to minister one to another as a whole universal body of Christ at times through our missions, through our offerings. We take the shoe boxes at Christmas time and to, and, 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 and to go into the Middle East, most of them, uh, as, as gifts. And, and, again, the idea is to minister on a broad scale at a, at a, in a large way. So the first thing I want to establish is that outside of the context of what denominations are and everything is, is the church. There, and within the framework of the church, there is no divisions. God does not look at the church and say, Oh, here's the Presbyterian church, here's the Methodist church, here's the Lutheran church, here's the non-denominational church, Redwood Christian Fellowship, here's you know, all these different groups. He says, here's that church, that church, that church. He says, no, here's the church, the body of Christ, all who are called out in his name. Something from the... Uh, R.C. Sproul's website, I, I, I grabbed it. In summary, the church is not a building or a denomination. According to the Bible, the church is the body of Christ. All those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And he referenced John 3.16 uh, you know, as, as a, a scripture. And then also 1 Corinthians 12.13, which are scriptures we've used over the last few weeks. Local churches are gatherings of people who claim the name of Christ. Members of the local church may may or may not be members of the universal church, depending on their genuineness of faith. And I was trying to read into that, and I remembered, and I think I even mentioned, used the phrase this morning already, but the idea was is that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in your garage makes you a car. A miraculous metamorphosis or transformation has to happen. Okay, that's a, an absurd picture and, and metaphor, but, but the idea is, is that just going to church is not enough to make you in a relationship with Christ and part of the body of Christ. Went to Mexico uh, a number of years ago with a, an 84-year-old uh, retired dentist on his first missionary trip. As it turned out, it was his only missionary trip that he ever went on. And as we got to talk to him, I found out something really interesting was that my grandfather had been his teacher in, 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 in uh, middle school in Lompoc, California. So God shrank the world right there, and we connected. And as a result, getting to talk to him, he shared with me. He said he, said he had been in the church. Lance Anderson, many of you know Lance Anderson. He was a pastor of Garberville uh, uh, Christian Church for years, and then pulpit supplies and, and over the years. And in a church he was pulpit supplying in, which is where this, church, this man was from, he says, at 84 years old, he said, I had never heard what he preached. And he was saved at 84. He had been a member of the board. He had been a leader in the church. He'd been raised in that in that church from from early age in that particular denomination, and he had never made a personal profession of faith. He'd never been asked to, was never called to. And I'm thinking, you know, how can that be? But then I found out that, that there's a lot of pastors uh, that stand in churches on Sunday morning and preach the word of God as the the teachings of Christ resurrected, but not Christ resurrected. So we understand that there's things going on in different churches. And so we get this idea of, of, of the reality of being in church. The church is those people who have professed Jesus Christ as their Savior. Being in a particular church is not what it takes. Being of a particular denomination doesn't save you. Being in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is what saves you. By the way, I had an interesting experience in reference to that missionary family in India. In 1979, 
in San Jose, California. I was going to Bible college and at the same time working for an unfinished furniture store. And I did furniture finishings. Plus, I had a, a separate area where people could come and finish the furniture themselves, and I would show them how to do it, and they could come and finish. And a man from India came in, a young man from India came in and, and bought furniture, and we were talking. And I said, you know, uh, he, he was remarking about how a particular situation had happened where he had, his friend had recently died in a railroad accident, which happened to be the son of these missionaries. As we got to talking. And so, again, God does amazing things. He shrinks the world in amazing ways. I was, I was meeting a man who was saved under their mission work. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it was exciting to meet. He's part of the church. You know, wherever we go is part of the body of Christ. If we're saved, we're part of the church. Anyway, uh, side note. Uh, so... We look at this and, and, and we, we come and understand that the, the church is the body of Christ and the beginning of the church is important to us. When did the church, as we understand it today, begin? It began on the day of Pentecost. That's 50 days after the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection weekend, I should say, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 50 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 2. And I'd like to just read those scriptures quickly. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. The they is 120 people who had been directed to stay and, and, and in Jerusalem and pray until God delivered to them the promise of the power that would, would, they would need to go forth in, in, in His ministry. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, uh, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at that sound of the multitude came together, they were bewildered because they each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And it goes on to tell what happened. And at the end of that, uh, a number of people coming to know the Lord. That was the beginning of the church. Followed, by the way, by Peter's sermon explaining what has happened. And he talks about the, the, the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. In fact, the book of Acts records the beginning and its spread of the, and the spread of the church throughout the Mediterranean area. So the book of Acts is basically a history book when you look at it. It's, it's divinely inspired. I believe it's God-breathed. The writer is, is inspired by the Lord to, to, to put it together. But it's the history of the church in, the, in its beginning. So if we want to understand and see how the church began, we go there. And we'll see it spread, as, as Jesus said it would in chapter 1 of, of, of Acts, all through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And isn't it interesting that it has happened? So we have the church in its beginning. We see that the church has a history. It's been around for uh, since the, the, the time of that, that day of Pentecost. And as we look at it, we say, why didn't, you know, as, as a group, why weren't they all together? I mean, why didn't... Why is there so many different parts to it now? Well, there was already different parts even in the early part of the church. There are the churches that were in Galatia. There were the churches that were over in North Africa. There were the churches that were in the Palestinian area. So there were the churches in various areas. 
And those churches became, if you will, interrelated because they were of proximity. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so I'm not saying that those became necessarily denominations, but you know, it was that they, they probably the, the the fact is is that we see through history and and, and outside of history writing and and, and historical uh, facts that show them interacting together. In the Book of Acts, we see them interacting together. Back to the idea of denominations. There, I, I want to say that there's no biblical mandate for denominations. It's not something the Bible says. You need to form denominations so that you can figure out how to rule over each other in, 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 in churches and stuff like that. However, there's nothing inherently wrong with them either. And so a denomination is basically the identification, if you will, a, a, a group of like-minded local churches who got together with similar distinctives, meaning they looked at things Pretty much the same way. Now, Paul got concerned about this when they started picking out particular people to look at. When they started saying, oh, we're of Apollos, or we are of, of, of Paul, or we are of Peter, or we, whatever. You know, the idea was, no, no, we're all of Jesus Christ. But different distinctives over the years, as we tra- trace church history, uh, as to... Ups, I call them ups and downs. We see the church drift away from the Word of God, and then God do something in an amazing way and bring them back to the core of, of the Word of God. And then the churches drift away. And in each section of those times, there were groups of people that became like minded and formed groups of worship together. The ultimate turn was the Catholic Church, which was mandated in the in the fourth century, the Constantine, and it was and it was the, the the national church, and it spread with as he spread as his kingdom spread the church spread with him, and that became the church. But what happened was that the church, as it developed became a, 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 an institution unto itself where the institution became the most important thing. Not necessarily the Word of God even. In fact, to the point where certain things that would actually be against the Word of God became part of the normal part of their worship. We say saved by grace. Catholic Church says saved by grace and works. There are certain things you must do in order to be saved. And it has to do with, with a whole list of, of, of things that the, the Catholic Church offers as a part of that. And... At a point in the 1500s, a group of people and men, and actually started earlier than that in the 1300s, started looking at us and saying, wait a minute, we don't see anything about works. We see grace. We see the, the picture of saved by God's grace. We don't see a, a, a sense of clergy. We don't see a sense of one leader on earth overseeing all of the church calling himself Christ on earth. Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. And they began to question this. And man, after that, there began uh, a lot of uh, persecution going on. People burned at the stake and thrown into prison and executed in various ways because they were preaching this gospel that they found as they studied the Word of God. Some of them were, were priests initially themselves, 
And, and they're saying, wait a minute, this isn't what the Word of God says. Luther, especially, as he went through the book of Romans, became uh, totally convinced. He says, the only way I can be saved has nothing to do with these confessions and these, these doing certain prayers and doing certain things and crawling on my knees and doing all these penance and all these things. He says, I must be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and grace alone. And what that started was uh, what is, is typically... Uh, we call the five solas that, that came out of this movement of the restoration and the reformation, excuse me. And, and, and uh, it's by grace, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone. In other words, it has nothing to do with the denomination. It has nothing to do with the group. It has to do with my relationship with Jesus Christ, through, with God through Jesus Christ. And that upset the world. <laughs> it really did. But that was God intervening, moving His hand and bringing us back to the reality. It's not a denomination that is the focal point. It's not a church calling itself the head as a, at a point. It is the Word of God alone. To Jesus Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. To grace alone. I stole this article off of a, uh, an inter- at a website that I go to. It's called Galaxy. It has, I think, uh, over 100 Christian journals that are used for just different universities and stuff, and you can get all these different articles that that are focused on different questions and stuff. And uh, this one is, why are there so many uh, Christian denominations? To answer this question, we must first differentiate between denominations within the body of Christ and non-Christian cults. He said, to start off, we've got we to clarify some things. And false religions. Presbyterians and Lutherans, are examples of Christian denominations. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are examples of cults, groups claiming to be Christian but denying one or more of the essentials of the Christian faith, which we'll look at in just a minute. Islam and Buddhism are entirely separate religions and cults. These, uh, the, the rise of denominations within the Christian faith can be traced back to the Protestant Reformation, the movement to reform the, the Roman Catholic Church during the 16th century, out of which four major divisions or trans, uh, traditions of Protestantism would emerge. Lutheran, Martin Luther, Lutheran, Reformed, Baptist, and Anglican. And Anglican would be the Church of England primarily. And from these four other denominations grew over the other denominations came out of that over the centuries. So we went from the in our Protestantism, we went to, to, to Lutheranism and, and Reformed and, and Anabaptist and Anglican. And, and, and from that, all these other denominations have come. Why so many? The reason is is. And I'm going to put it in as, as, as hopefully as simply as I can is, again, this same picture of the church drifting away from the foundation of the scriptures. And a group of people within that church turning around and saying, wait a minute. As they study the word of God, possibly from their seminaries or, or as they're becoming pastors and, and different things. And they're looking at it and they go through the same experience Martin Luther went through. And they're saying, wait a minute, we're drifting away from the core of what this is. We're losing our focus on Jesus Christ. We're looking at our, losing our focus on the, the Word of God as God breathed. And as a result, we're beginning to get tied up with, and the Word is institution again. And we're drifting away. We're, the institution is becoming more important than the body of Christ. If you're a part of my institution, my church, as it's institutionalized, you're going to be saved. That's what it takes. In fact, some countries developed in such a way that, that 
some of the, the, the denominations became the mandate religion of the state. In Germany, Lutheranism was the mandated religion. It was, it, 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 these types of things started to happen. And again, they started drifting away from what the purpose of the church was. End result was that God has to intervene again and again and again and again. Our human nature is to bring man into the church in such a way that we are controlling its destiny, or at least we think we are. And losing sight of Christ as the head, we become self-important. And as soon as that happens, we drift away. The Word of God becomes less important. Like I said, there are pastors who have preached the gospel in the United States. When I say gospel, but according to their definition, uh, have preached the, the gospel this, this day in the United States and other parts of the world who do not believe this is the inspired Word of God. They just believe it's a history book. And at that, full of folklore and fables. I have been actually told, you really believe all that stuff? Literally? Yes, I do. No, it's just folklore and fables reflecting like Davy Crockett. Jesus, looking at Jesus Christ and, and developing a picture of him just like Davy Crockett. Or Daniel Boone and all the stories about them. Are they all true? Probably not. But we come back to the Word of God where... Paul makes it clear as he talks to Timothy. This is God-breathed, the inspired Word of God. It's good for building up and educating and bringing forth the idea of, of developing a Christian walk and Christian life. So, within just a couple of hundred years of the Reformation, we've drifted backwards again. And what does God do? Well, he, especially in the United States. We got over to the United States and there's a lot of independence and a lot of different ways of looking at things and are drifting away from the, the things of God. And we have what was called the Great Awakening. Out of the Great Awakening came a whole bunch of other denominations, new denominations, because the old ones were drifted away to the point where they would have nothing to do with this come back to the Word of God. And so Jonathan Edwards and others that you'll know, uh, uh, George Whitfield and, and, and coming out of all of that was the picture of the, the return to the Word of God. And yet in a short period of time, by the, the late 1700s in the early 18, and into the early 1800s in the United States, we saw all of these denominations. They said it's a sad thing that there's more people in the bars on Sunday morning than are at church. In fact, uh, John Marshall, who was the, the Supreme Court Justice, was concerned about the United States and its survival because of that. He was the one that made that statement. And what does God do? He creates a phenomenal bringing together of Christian people from of all places, the Ohio Valley. The largest city was Lexington, Kentucky, 1,500 people. And yet in the fields around that area, in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, and other places, there were revivals breaking out. of, And revival is not where lots of non-believers become. It's the church finally coming back to its roots and doing what it's supposed to do. The church is revived and then the, the people are saved. Okay? So the revival in the church, and it started in prayer meetings and, and different things started going. And the next thing you know, they started having what they called camp meetings. That was the first time there was camp meetings. And men preaching on the stumps of fallen trees uh, and and and... All of a sudden, here in the Ohio Valley are 25, Cane Ridge, 25,000 people in one area 
coming to hear the gospel of God being preached. Isn't that amazing? Called the second great awakening. God will, the reason why I'm doing all of this is to make sure you'll understand, God will not, and we do not have to worry about God's word surviving. We do not have to worry about the church surviving. I've heard people, man, if this doesn't change, the church is ended. You know, I've heard preaching that comes from that. If the man doesn't get his, no way. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church, Jesus said. Nobody's going to end the church. The church is Jesus Christ and, and the body of believers that have already, it's, it's, it's there and it will be and it's eternal in its nature. It's not going to disappear. So we're not worried about the church, but what we do need to be concerned about is our part within the framework of that. And so in the 1800s, early 1800s was the Cambridge Revival and other revivals uh, where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were, were coming and restore, re, being return, restored into their faith and, and on thousands upon thousands becoming saved at that same time. Um, the things run as course as modern history begins to develop and we have more and more modern technology. It seems that the gaps between the the, the, the breakdown of the church and the, and the modernization of the church or the culturalization of the church where the culture enters into the church and the church loses its identity and its, and its separateness and as a result losing its holiness as well. And the end result is, is, is that God again needs to bring about another awakening. And He does so in the 1890s and He does so again in the 1970s. We, you know, as we look at this, and some people will turn around and look at the 1970s and say the Jesus, the Jesus freaks, the Jesus movement, this type of thing. But it was a time of revival in the church because there was a turn, even in, in stern denominations who had drifted away from the Word of God, returned to the Word of God and started preaching the Word of God. So. What I'm wanting to say is that the church is the body of Christ. God never abandons it. It's not a denomination. It's the people okay, of Christ. Can you be a part of a denomination? Yes. Somebody that says assembly of God. Is that a denomination that you can look at and say they're saved? If they've confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior and entered into a personal relationship, yes. Not because they go to the assembly of God, but because they've got a personal relationship with Christ. Somebody says the same thing about Redwood Christian Fellowship. Can it possibly be a church because it's not part of a denomination? Absolutely. If the people there have confessed Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, accepted Him in, his, in their hearts and believe in their, in, in their hearts and, and, and confess with their mouth that He is the Son of God. There was a story, a parable, written. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard it. It's called The Parable of the Life-Saving Station. Now, a few of you are already going like this. Bear with me then. You're going to hear it again. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tirelessly searching for the lost from the shipwreck. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and their money and their effort for the support of the work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building, and now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they redecorated it beautifully 
and furnished it as a sort of club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work for them. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part of the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews bought in a boatload of of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had uh, black skin, and some spoke a strange language, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving station activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the life saving the life of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club and yet another life saving station was founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of the exclusive clubs along that shoreline. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters. Only most of the people drown. Now, I know that that's a, a kind of a curt story, and, and we know, you know, but the idea is there is a cycle that seems to go within the framework of the body of Christ where we are excited about Christ and, and, and we raise up a generation or two or three and we really are hungry to share the Word of God with other people and we become what we are supposed to be, the church. And as we minister and, and, we, and, and, and stuff, what happens is that we become a body of believers together. And over a season, we become very familiar with each other Our families have grown up together. Our kids have grown up together. Even our grandkids have grown up together. And as a result, we end up with this picture of of multiple generations in a particular place. And we enjoy each other's fellowship. We enjoy our potlucks. But seldom is there a lot of effort put out to reaching out to those who don't know Christ. The purpose of the church is to reveal Christ to the world and to let the world see that Christ is alive. And if we're failing to do that, we're not being the church. It doesn't have anything to do with the denomination. It has to do with being a part of the body of Christ. So what I looked at was, what are the essentials that make us the body of Christ? And I thought, I'm going to do something you know, that makes it easy for me to put this together. I'm just going to go to our statement of faith. I don't know how many of you have ever gone online, but you can go online to our website and read the statement of faith. What what it is that we say we believe. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But initially, we, we start off with the Bible. Now, some churches start off with other things. It doesn't matter what you start off with, but the Bible needs to be in there. The Bible is an essential part of who we are. We believe the Bible is the very Word of God being produced by human authors who were inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit in its production. That's what we say our congregation stands for. If that is not something that you've come to in conclusion, man, you need to come and, and visit with me, talk with me and, and, or one of the other elders or somebody else in the church and see why it is we believe that, but it's, it's the picture. Paul even says it is the God-breathed word for the purposes of building up the body of Christ. We believe in God. <laughs> now, we started with the Scripture in our statement of faith so that we would say, because the Scripture tells us all about God and who He is. And we believe in the God that the Scriptures talk about. We believe that there is only one living and true God. Again, Scriptures are quoted here who has eternally existed, eternally existed, 
and is the creator of all things. God is one in essence and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We go on to talk about the, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the reality of, of who they are and what they, they do in the framework of the ministry to the church. And then we talk about creation. God is the creator of heaven and earth by His Word and for His glory. He freely and supernaturally created the world out of nothing in six literal days. Through the same Word, He daily sustains all His creatures. He rules over and, and, and is the one who supplies even our very breath. Scriptures over and over again quoted through this. If you want to see the Scriptures and all the Scripture references, just simply go to our website and click on About Us and there's going to, you'll see Statement of Faith and read through this. We talk about the fact that we have a real adversary. And, we, and so in our statement of faith, we identify Satan as our adversary. We identify the reality that man has fallen and has sin and is separated from God and needs a Savior. And as, as long as we are separated from God and refuse to look at God of the Scripture as He is and what He's done to save us, if we reject that, we are accepting the doom that is on Satan for ourselves. We talk about the church, as we've already done this morning. We talk about uh, Jesus Christ as the head of the church. We talk about the ordinances of the church. Now, we, as, as a Protestant church, look at two ordinances in the church. One is baptism, and the other is communion. The ordinances of the church. Now, some of the things that divide churches are over those particular issues. Who's to be baptized and when? We are of, of, of the belief that a person is baptized when they can confess a personal faith in Jesus Christ and make a personal decision that they want to repent from their sins. Someone might say, and I've actually been asked over the years, why don't you have infant baptism? Because they're not able to confess we have infant dedication and a commitment by the congregation to, to do everything we can to raise that child up so that they will know Jesus Christ. But at some point, it's a personal decision. In communion, sharing the blood and the, and, 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 and the body of Christ, we share it in symbolic. We don't believe it's the literal blood or the literal body but the, the fruit of the vine and bread. And we use them as symbolism of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ as he instructed himself on the last supper with his disciples. Some people divide over how often. There's even churches that divide on over how often we do communion. We've had some people leave our church because we do communion every single Sunday. You notice how I said that? Every single Sunday. Okay? They're, con they're, they're, they're concerned that, you know, what if it gets old? What if it, if it gets old, it's because we're not in the Word of God. We're not walking with Christ. We're not, there's something missing. It, communion is a celebration of thanksgiving of what Christ has done. And we conclude our service every, every Sunday with it to say, thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. And it's also a time for us to examine ourselves Paul tells us to examine ourselves and look and see if there's any sin in us that we need to confess. It's a time of, 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 of looking in retrospect as well. And then finally, uh, and what I, I, I just draw your attention to in our statement of faith is it says, last things in the kingdom of God. The last things meaning we believe that Jesus Christ is coming again to collect his church and that we will dwell with him forever in the kingdom of God, period. To me, those are the essentials. That's why they're in our statement of faith. They're the essentials. Are there other things that, 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 that some churches have? Well, we start to call them distinctives. Uh, you know, and, and, and the distinctives could be um, wherever I wrote them on all these pages. Uh, distinctives could be uh, the difference between uh, charismatic and non-charismatic. 
Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal, meaning there's people who speak in tongues in their churches today. That's a distinctive of theirs. We don't see that as a need in the congregation today. And, and as a result, we don't practice it in our, in, our, in our worship services. Does that mean we're unsaved or they're unsaved? No, those are distinctive. They have nothing to do with the essentials. How about how we worship? There are some, some churches that will worship only with the voice. They will use no instruments because they feel it's sacrilege to, to assume that, a, that an instrument can be brought in. It's just the voices alone. They're called non-instrumental, and it's not just the non-instrumental Church of Christ, but there's non-instrumental groups in a lot of different categories. And by the way, it is an interesting thing to worship with that group. You will never hear such great harmony as comes out of a group like that because they don't have the instruments. They need to create that that. And it, it is amazing. It happens. Are both groups part of the body of Christ? Absolutely. What are some of the other distinctives? Family worship. Some churches insist that all the families stay together. Other churches have children's church. Other churches have the option, which is what we have. Kathy and I showed up to a church once. We were blown away. We had our kids with us. They were, we were visitors. They'd never been there before. And they said, oh, your kids have to go over here. He said, well, we'd like to bring him with us. <laughs> and he said, well, if that's the case, you go into the overflow room and we'll watch it on a television screen. Which is what we did. Okay? They, they don't include. Other churches, the, one of the churches that I was uh, uh, part of and, 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 and was uh, in, very much involved in, the preacher wanted the kids in the service. He says, I can out-preach any kids crying. And that was his philosophy because that's the way he had been raised. Those are distinctives. They're not essentials. The essentials are non-negotiables. The distinctives are what forms congregations. We'll share the essentials together with various congregations and various denominations, but the end result is the distinctives are what cause us to be in various places. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And so we end up with that picture of what is important, the essentials. What makes the church and body of Christ the essentials. The Word of God. God breathed. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Saved through Jesus Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone. The understanding that as we come together on Sunday mornings, it's to be instructed by the Word of God. That's a critical part of our service, obviously. We devote a lot of time to it. And to worship together. To prepare our hearts to receive and to sit together in the Word of God. And to ultimately come and also share communion together. That may be some of our distinctives, if you will. Weekly communion, it is. Some churches only do it once a month. Other churches only do it once a quarter. Some only do it on communion Sunday once a year. Does that mean they're not saved? No. But we do it every Sunday because it is such an important part from our perspective as a distinctive in the sense of worship. Because Jesus Christ said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And in the book of Acts it says, as often as they gathered together, they broke bread together. And we take that, and that's one of our distinctives. And so we're going to share communion to close out our service this morning. Uh, ask the worship team to come up. Ask the ushers to come and pass.